Did you take advantage of Amazon Prime Day? I'm not a member, and I keep thinking I'm missing out on something. But I'm at that stage in life where we're just at the top of the hill, where we've bought all the couches and all the chairs and all the patio furniture that we're probably ever going to buy, and we're kind of just cresting the top of the hill before we downsize it all and start trying to give it away or find good homes for it, or my wife keeps threatening to get a bin. Has anybody done that, where you get the bin and you start throwing large items that you have into the bin, and then somebody takes the bin away. You never have to see the items again. She keeps threatening to do that. I still think we have a lot of stuff we need. We're just starting to crest that hill. But yesterday, Amazon Prime Day offered all kinds of deals here and there, and I I didn't need anything. I if you ask me, what do you need? I I don't. I have shoes on my feet. I'm wearing a shirt and pants. I think I'm okay. I don't think I need anything. I think I'm fine. Amazon is one of those really interesting companies to watch. Because when you look at their earnings based against other companies, they're not the biggest. So they're not taking over the market, it would appear. But it's the way that we measure statistics that kind of fools everybody. Because you look and you think, okay, well, are they as big as this company? No, 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 they're not selling as much as that company. Are they as big as this company? No, they're not selling as much as that company. And then all of a sudden you look at their online sales. Have you seen the stats of online sales with regard to Amazon? Now, I don't have Canadian stats. These are American stats. But of every dollar spent online in the United States, 44 cents is given to Amazon. And to put a little perspective on that, eBay also collects a lot of the online revenue. It's eBay. They get 6%. So think about that. 44 cents of every dollar spent in the United States online goes to Amazon. eBay is getting 6 cents of that dollar. And yet you look and you think, ah, oh, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. It's, they're not really changing the landscape at all. They're changing the landscape. Something else we're going to get into later this week, maybe even tomorrow, we'll start. I want to talk about baseball. The All-Star Game goes tonight. You can hear it on 980 CFPL. Brings together everybody. They all wear different uniforms. I always love that about baseball. Basketball has done that, and they've copied baseball. It's very good, even Well, hockey hasn't done it for their little four-on-four tournament, but the skills competition, you can wear your own uniform. And they will get together tonight, and and they'll have their fun. What we need to look at is the sport of baseball itself, and we'll start to do this because I still think it's in trouble, but then you look at the statistics. You look at the numbers, and there are Canadian statistics for that, and baseball is doing just fine in Canada. In fact, it's doing very well in Canada, and yet I still think you look into the future – I don't know how long this sport lasts. Can it make it through the, we need contact with everything, we need excitement, we need things happening every three seconds. Can it make it through that and out the other side? We'll begin to look at that tomorrow on London Live. If you are doing shopping that is not online, my wife and I actually decided to go to Costco on Sunday. And basically because we needed gum. Anybody else do this? What draws you into Costco? We needed gum. And they have a really good deal on gum. I, I'm pretty sure our entire Costco membership for the year, I don't think we get 
what we put into it. But we still get it because we need the gum. And if you were to buy 25 packs of gum at 2 bucks a piece, that would be 50 bucks. You can get 25 packs of gum for 15 Used to be 11 I don't know why the price is going up so much. But we decided to go to Costco, and we were there when it opened. And it kind of struck both of us because we're looking around. We parked in the parking lot. We got there early. There was a line to get in. I thought, seriously? We're, we have lines at the beer store, the liquor store, and Costco. I don't know who else has a lineup pretty much every day that they open up. Beer store and liquor store, definitely. There are always people lingering out front. But I didn't think Costco would have that. Any other grocery stores have that? Has anybody ever seen a line anywhere else? If you can name stores that exist where people line up, and I don't mean when a new phone is coming out or in the old days when you wanted to buy an album. Can't do that anymore. But just if it's about to open its doors and there is a lineup, beer store, liquor store, Costco, I can't think of anywhere else. If you can, please just shoot me an email. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Because that, yeah, I'm racking my brain, have been for a while. Can't come up with it. While we're on the topic of money, in a moment, we are going to be talking about the fact that Verge Capital has hit their funding target. They've reached their goal. So what does this mean for the city of London? If you don't know much about the story, we'll have the complete story for you. But they've reached their goal, and does that mean that we start seeing dollars fall back into our city here, there, and all over the place? Quite probably. And we'll detail exactly what would become of those dollars. And then at 1.35, we've got to talk about this. Last week, we were discussing the cedars burning down. We were looking at some of the concerns about historic buildings. And something's been sticking with me since then. And I think it was Alan who brought it up. And I'll credit Alan right now. And if it wasn't Alan, then I apologize. Please let me know if it was you. The idea was that we need to do a better job paring down what we consider to be historic. The Cedars was easy. It was a big building, even though it was a little bit out of the way. It was a sports club back in the day, back in the 1800s. So it was an easy one. But we've got a lot of other stuff that continually pops up. And someone will say, yeah, well, that's where so-and-so spent the night. Or that's where this person was born, and so it should be an historic site. And I don't think that's the right way to go. But the question will come up this way, and we'll do this in about 20 minutes from now. Is London preserving history in the right way? Or do we need to be doing something completely different? There are some pretty neat initiatives. We checked in on the Here, Here. So H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E. Remember this when it came out? I think it was May when we first learned about this. And Here, Here is going to give you an opportunity to be at certain locations in the city and then using your phone get all kinds of information about it. But they're still putting this together. This is not an easy thing to build. And in fact, it takes a little bit of money to do it. So eventually this will become a thing and it'll be there. It's in other cities. There are opportunities for you to go and and listen and say, okay, yeah, okay. This is the spot where that sparring match took place. Somebody dropped their glove and had a duel right here. In 1843, that's that's pretty phenomenal. I'm standing on that spot. And it's a great way to appreciate history. 
But it's a whole lot different than saying, yeah, that dilapidated building over there, that it, be careful talking around it because we've been told that the sound of a voice could actually vibrate it to the ground. It's, it's just barely hanging on. Yeah, we need to do something. We, need, we, don't, we don't want to touch that. We don't want to bulldoze that because it's, it's historically significant. Yeah, but it's been in disrepair and it's not what it needs to be. It's not making the city look good. Yeah, but, but it's history. So we'll get to that in about 20 minutes from now. Think about it for a minute, and then we'll open up the phones and have a discussion. Up next, we will talk about Verge Capital hitting their funding target. Now what? What happens? How does the city benefit? How do people in the city benefit? That's next. This is London Live on Tuesday. My name is Mike Stubbs. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You probably know people who have invested very well. You know those people who kind of knew that Amazon was going to be big? By the way, Rose sent a note saying, too bad I didn't know, Mike. I would have been happy to give you my list of things that I wanted if you really had an urge to spend. I'm not a good spender. I'm not the, I don't know if it was spending. I just I can't even think of anything that I need. Shoes, clothes, no. No couches. Got one of those. We're at that point in our lives. So, okay, Rose, well, we'll, we'll work out. We'll work out exactly what what you need, and maybe we can... Maybe we can find a way to uh, to make that happen. Let's look right now at an investment that has kind of come to a very interesting point. Because you know those people who invest in Amazon and they say, oh, yeah, I did very well on this. Or people will say, yeah, I invested in medicinal marijuana and or invested in other kinds of marijuana and things have worked out very well. And I don't know, I, I don't put my chips down on the table very often. I don't, I don't put them down on red. I don't put them down on black. I'd rather keep my chips under my mattress. But something very interesting happened back in 2014. Something very interesting began. It was called Verge Capital. And Verge Capital exists today. It's a social finance program. And it's part of Pillar Nonprofit Network. And it has hit a, a pretty fascinating spot. And that's why we want to check in on what this is going to mean for everybody around here. Joining us to discuss it is Lena Bowden. Lena, how are things? Good. Good to be on your uh, your show, Mike. Take us back to 2014 and the origins of all of this, if you could. Okay, uh, for sure. So it all started with uh, the community rallying together. And so we had uh, people around the table, London Community Foundation, Liberal Credit Union, Sister St. Joseph's Color Nonprofit Network were kind of the lead organizations that uh, created this uh, new thing called Verge, which was really a, a, a program where we want to make connections between caring investors and social enterprises and social purpose investments. So we started this idea then that we would someday launch a fund that would allow investors to make investments, pool their monies together, and make investments in community-based initiatives. So when you say investors, just to use it as an example, could these be investors who would otherwise be investing in other things, maybe buying shares in Amazon, maybe buying shares in company ABC? Yes. So, uh, so the way we look at impact investing, it's it's uh, 
kind of a, you can almost think of it as an asset class. So people will often allocate a certain percentage of their investment portfolio and say, I want X percentage to go into impact investing where I can make a local difference. So uh, with our fund, they get a return on their investment and they also get what we call a social return. So not only do they know that they're going to get their money back and then also get some interest on that money, but they also know that we're we're measuring the impact that their money is having on the on the community. At the time, how confident were you that this could work? Well, our initial fund, we actually have been at this now for uh, more than a couple of years. So we did receive some funding from the Ontario government that helped launch an initial fund that we now call the Startup Fund. And that uh, fund has already made in 11 investments in community-based social enterprises in southwestern Ontario. But with that fund, it's been primarily London. So we already have some experience sort of uh, making loans and then getting the money repaid. Now, that initial fund was done through grants. And so when we first start talking about this, uh, you know, I... I have an investment background, so it's always been my passion that one day we wouldn't just be taking sort of grants monies and having that create a fund, but that we'd actually create a mechanism that would allow investors to also participate in impact investing. And so by the time, it was always my dream, and I think I was fairly confident that we could launch a fund. This fund is uh, now at $2.26 million, so it's our what we call our demonstration fund to make sure that we can test this and make sure it works. There's 20 investors that are are pooled in that uh, fund. But our dream is that that'll get to $50 million because there's a lot of investment money out there and we do have an opportunity to make investments that are are more local and have a local impact. Lena Bowden with us from Verge Capital as we talk about how this process started and how it's come to be. So do you put any benchmarks? Are you hitting benchmarks? So with the uh, the fund that we've just created, the goal, the target is that we will return a 3% um, return to our investors, and it's a seven-year product. So it's a little different than, you know, investing in, say, a stock that you can actually trade on an active public market that you can, you know, if you decide you, you know, you don't want Amazon anymore, you want to start buying, um, you know, Apple shares, then you're going to, you can go and trade that on a, a on an exchange. With our our fund, it's it's illiquid. So basically, people are invested for seven years, and we make loans. So we're not doing private equity investments or equity investments in companies. We're actually doing loans. So we lend money out at uh, an average of around five or six percent. So loans are going to be based on whatever it is at market. So we're making affordable housing loans and other real estate loans that will have security against it. So the rates might be a little lower on those types of loans. And then we're making loans to social enterprises as well, which if they're, uh, you know, don't have security against it, then though that interest rate might go at a little bit higher. So on average, we hope to return about 5 or 6%, keep a 2% management fee to help us pay the bills, and then the rest goes to the investors. So the target is that they will return get a 3% return. You know, and on top of that, there also there's going to be some metrics around the impact. So we'll be actually giving them reports, their financial reports to show what their financial return is, but we'll also be providing impact reports which will show, you know, how many new affordable housing units did we create? How many new jobs did we create? You know, how how are we, you know, doing at tackling some of our more wicked problems in the community like poverty? What do people say when they first find out about an initiative like this? 
Well, I think a lot of people are first and foremost concerned because there's a, you know, there's, we don't want to necessarily compete with philanthropy because we still want people to be very philanthropic, but people donated dollars has a certain limit. And so this is another opportunity to make an investment and get, you know, get your money back, but also get a return. And I think the skeptics will say, and a lot of, and some of our investors actually do go and talk to their financial advisors and say, what do you think of this product? And I think a lot of the experts would say, oh, you're never going to get your money back because you're basically donating your money to charity. And even though it's an investment, you know, it'll slide into that charity category. And that is, you know, one reason why we want to be able to stand up against any other investment that people might make and, you know, demonstrate that, yes, we can, people will get their money back and they will make a return. There is no slide. That word doesn't exist. No, no. And, you know, we issued, this is along the same lines, uh, pulling on profit, you know, launched Innovation Works and they issued a community bond, raised a million dollars. It's very similar to that. Those people, those 48 investors who invest in the community bond were impact investors. You know, they're getting a 3% return, but they're also seeing something really good happen in the community. And, you know, same sort of thing. People were worried, well, then, well, pillars of charity, will they eventually just ask to keep my money? And the answer is no. The, that was an investment. It's a loan. And, you know, Innovation Works is on solid footing, and they're going to get their money back as well as their interest. Lena Bowden with us from Verge Capital. Lena, is there a specific name for it if people are interested in asking about it? Okay, so the fund that we've launched is called the Verge Breakthrough Fund. Uh, it is closed, though, now. So we have raised the money, you know, June 30th was our close date uh, for now. However, we the one thing we do at Verge, Verge Capital is an intermediary that works with community groups. So, you know, for example, there's a community group right now that we're working with to try and talk about ways that they could maybe potentially launch a community bond or uh, other types of vehicles. So our work is not just in this one particular fund, but we also want to continue to find other ways that people can, you know, initiate these kinds of products and uh, raise capital for their initiative if it's a revenue generating initiative whereby they will be able to return the money and the interest. So, um, so yeah, and, and we do hope that, you know, in, in short order, we'll have another fund that will be able to open up again and let people make investments in it. Lena, finally, let's look at the other end of things and where the money is able to be used. You mentioned things like housing projects and jobs. How does that work? So uh, we're already taking in uh, applications for loans, and we're already working. We've already uh, issued one loan in partnership with the London Community Foundation, which created a consortium of investors whereby they were able to help um, a uh, affordable housing developer raise $2.5 million, and we were part of that. And we've made one loan on affordable housing. We have two loans that have just recently been approved, and they're actually both for the Guelph area. And uh, they are uh, one is a social enterprise, and the other one is a community hub, very similar to Innovation Works. So the the we do have an, a little bit of a target asset mix for the portfolio. So half of the investments will go in affordable housing, and uh, about another possibly third ish would go into what we call community real estate like community hubs and um, an investment that has a security against it and the remainder will be loans to social enterprises and it is for southwestern Ontario not just London uh, but it was started in London and uh, you know most of our 
kind of our, our team is here from London, but we're really becoming Southwestern Ontario's, um, you know, social finance experts. Nice. Well, that's a good title. If, if somebody was interested in more, where could they go? So they could go to vertcapital.ca and they can certainly look us up there. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're at Innovation Works. If they ever want to drop by and come and chat with us, uh, we're part of the Pillar team. And uh, and we, we would look forward to having a conversation with anybody who's interested in doing impact investing and learning a little bit more about impact investing and how we can help. And as I say, we're also working with community groups that are looking at ways to innovative ways to raise capital, and we can help them with that as well. Lena, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations. All right. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Bye. That is Lena Bowden from Verge Capital as we talk about a different way of investing. Investing in our history. How do we do that? How do we do it in London? Is it about buildings? Or could it be about more than that? Or does it have to be about buildings? We'll examine those questions after Jacqueline LaBelle with news. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Heather has added to today's list. Heather says people line up at Walmart for a 7 a.m. opening daily. See, I knew beer store and liquor store. People always line up out front of the beer store and out front of the liquor store for reasons. And then we were out on the weekend. We went to Costco, and there was a big lineup out front of Costco, and it wasn't supposed to open till 10, and yet people started wheeling in. We were sitting in the car, and we're thinking, they're going in. The line's getting smaller. We could go. I don't know how close to 10 o'clock it was. I didn't look, but it was before 10 and everybody got to go in. So Costco had a big line. And then Heather says Walmart. Anywhere else that people will actually line up to go shopping? This all came about because yesterday was Amazon Prime Day where you didn't have to line up at all. You could just, if you were, I think you had to be a Prime member. Isn't that the thing? It's probably one of those, let's get more memberships day for Amazon. We'll offer you sales, but you have to be a member. So I didn't shop there. You don't have to wait in line at Amazon. Is there anywhere else that people will actually wait in line as a store opens? I think this might be the big four. Beer store, liquor store, Costco, and Walmart. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Shane says there are always lineups at all gates for night's games. All seats are assigned, but the diehard fans, they're waiting to get in. Okay, that kind of counts too. And if there are seats to be purchased, yeah, people will line up there. Okay, London Knights. But it's still the big four as far as stores go. Beer store, liquor store, Costco, and Walmart. Heather also pointed out that she also has a Costco membership based on gum. Thank you, Heather. I'm not alone. We do. That's what... what do we need some gum? Yeah, we need some gum. Okay, let's go to Costco. I can't think of anything else that we absolutely have to buy there. On the weekend, we bought gum. We bought uh, the pickled beans or whatever, those beans. You can get a good deal on those. Big jar. That was about it. We didn't buy the big mustard or the big ketchup or the three dishwashing soaps for whatever it was. We didn't buy that. 60 packets of oatmeal for whatever it is. Just the gum. Brings you, you save a ton of money on gum, I'm telling you. 
Let's address history. If you do know of anywhere else that someone lines up to get in, please shoot me an email. Let's see if we can make this list longer, but I'm pretty sure this will now be the big four. Beer store, liquor store, Costco, Walmart. Because it used to be, every once in a while, record stores. Can't do that anymore. Not even sure what else would even fit there. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Let's move to London's history. Because as we talked about last week when we were looking at a very tragic fire that took down the Cedars, we looked at a number of angles on history in London. And we talked with... Councillor Paul Hubert, we talked with someone who is very interested in making sure that history is preserved in any city at any time. But when we look forward, we're going to have a lot of things because you have places that people will visit. You have places where people were born and grew up. And because of the scope of what makes fame anymore, we've got more and more famous people. We've got more people who will go on to be actors. We've got more people who will go on to be sports stars. You're not just dealing with six teams, ten teams, twelve teams anymore in a league. We're up over 30, or at least at 30, in most professional leagues, meaning there are more jobs. You've got more people who come from more places who are going to play professional sports. We should be honoring great surgeons. We should be honoring great scientists. We need to do that, and you know what? We've got that in our history. But to say that every single one of those individuals can be traced back to a building to identify them is ridiculous. And a lot of times we will have that as being a part of, wait, we can't touch that building because somebody may have lived there, even though the building itself needed to be touched about 25 years ago so that repairs could be done and it didn't fall into shambles. Because that's my biggest problem with historical preservation. If you can make it look good, great. If you can't, Um, maybe there's a picture and maybe that's what we do. So are we doing enough in London to preserve our history? And the other question to this is, do we need to be focused so much on buildings or, and I pointed to the here, here project, H E A R H E R E, where you're going to be able to use your phone and you can do this in other cities. And you can be in a spot, and you can basically find out about that particular spot. And there's a map, and there are all kinds of places you can go to. Is that enough? Or are we stuck on saying, no, 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 we've got to preserve all the buildings that we can. All of these buildings that will soon be decrepitly 150 years old. That's, that's history. What do you think about this? Because we really don't seem to have the scope that we need for preserving London's history. Let's open up the phones, and you can also email me, mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet at Stubbs980. Phone number is 519-643-2222. A, are we doing enough right now to preserve London's history? And B, does history have to be tied to a building? Take a look at Budweiser Gardens. I think that's a fantastic example. You had the old Talbot Hotel, which has been incorporated into the design so that when somebody from out of town walks around Budweiser Gardens and says, yeah, why is that corner of the arena a whole lot different than the other three corners? Why is that a a different facade? 
And they can say, well, you know what? There was a Talbot Hotel and it was on this particular spot. And this is just paying tribute to that. Because remember, when they were building Budweiser Gardens, the idea was, hey, we should preserve everything about the Talbot Hotel. And then people went in and picked up bricks and the bricks just became dust in their hands. So they tumbled bricks. They, they really went to great lengths to do what they did on the outside of Budweiser Gardens. Is that something that you would give the thumbs up to? Could we pay tribute to spots or tribute to people instead of having to worry about preserving or putting all kinds of money into buildings that are not getting any newer? And if you think that what was known about construction in 1850 is what is known about construction now. Some of the principles are the same, but a lot of the stuff, not so much. So you necessarily, you don't necessarily have the opportunity to have things set to live forever or set to live any particular amount of time, especially when they fall into disrepair. How are we doing for London's history? 519-643-2222. Email mike at 980cfpl.ca or you can tweet me at stubs980. More to come on London Live in a moment. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. All right, a couple interesting emails to get to. One that I really like about virtual tours. We got one from Sam. Sam says, we aren't doing enough. There are all kinds of historic spots that no one pays attention to that will continue to run into ruin simply because no one pays attention. Well, that gets back to the list and how big this list should actually be, and what constitutes being on the list. Just because a place has made it to a hundred years of age doesn't necessarily make it historically significant, does it? I don't think so. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. And then got this one from Jake. Jake says, what about virtual tours? What we need is a film crew to go through the city like Google, but more in-depth. Create evidence of what a particular building was like, not what it is like after it falls into disrepair. I could go for that. Because, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you need to see to appreciate history. Especially if you're looking to show someone who is younger. I mean, you could be walking along the street and you could say, hey, check out that building. That is the building where this happened and this happened. And if you've got a young person with you, they're going to say, well, yeah, but it needs to be painted or something. It's falling over. Look at all the scrabbly stuff in front. But if you were able to create more of a, a virtual element to it, and you've got to do it as it happens, it's almost like... Look at the job that the Memory Project has done with veterans. This is a great example of how to preserve history, period. The Memory Project basically said, we are losing our veterans. And in a way, it and anybody else realized it all too late. Where you looked around and you said, boy, there really aren't a lot of people who fought in World War One. We should try and put down exactly what they remember from it. And if you go online to thememoryproject.com, you'll find all kinds of information about people who fought in World War I. A lot of it's written. Some of it isn't, though. They were able to talk to some veterans. And then they did the same thing for World War II. 
but there were still more people who were living at that point, and they were able to talk to them. And at that point, a lot of people who had not wanted to tell stories about being in the war were thinking, you know what, I want to tell my story. I need to tell my story. And you get this first-person account. And if you sit back and start listening to some of those first-person accounts, they are absolutely riveting. That's where history comes alive. History is not alive in a dilapidated old building that somebody should have kept up but didn't. And that's where I think we've really got to draw a line when it comes to historical preservation in any city. London, Ontario, for sure. If we could go and capture a building that you know is historically significant, and a lot of times now you could say it's easy, you know, to use the example Budweiser Gardens, one day that will be historically significant because it will be replaced by something else. And there is enough video of things that went on inside Budweiser Gardens now that it's easy to see what it was like. Oh, look, there's Shania Twain on stage. Oh, look, there's the London Knights winning the Memorial Cup. Things like that. But when it comes to other spots that aren't necessarily as public, to be able to go in and say, okay, this person who was from London, Ontario, cured this form of cancer. We could look back 50 years from now. They cured this form of cancer. They lived in this house. This was their bedroom. You could have that tour. That's the kind of thing that I think would make history come alive. And that's the kind of thing that's going to draw in the next generation. You know, we've often resigned ourselves to museums. And museums can be great. But museums have always been a little bit shy of anyone who is not completely interested in this is not going to get much out of it because if you're completely interested in it you're going to go and you're going to look and you're going to say okay there's the artifact there's what it means there's who owned it if you're just kind of walking by eh, yeah okay it's that's uh, a piece of wood that came from from a building all right great fantastic when are we done and that's the attitude that you run into And that's something that's unfortunate. Whereas if you were able to build something, like Jake says, something virtual, that's when you're going to really have things hit home. And in a way, we're already creating a virtual world with all the video that goes on, with all the pictures that are taken. But that might be the right way to do it. Now it's just a matter of finding someone to do it. We will take a break. We'll come back, let you know what is still ahead on London Live. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Let's go to the phones, 519-643-2222, as we continue the discussion on London history. Kevin, how you doing? Not too bad, Mike. How are you doing today? Pretty good, thanks. I want to start the call off. i got to give a shout-out to my buddy Jonathan and all my people over at FedEx Ground and all the couriers out there delivering your Amazon Prime Day <laughs> delivery things and... Not exactly happy with you the way you're promoting it right now, but that's okay. We'll get, we'll get through it. We'll get through it. <laughs> All right. Well, you did a good job promoting what you guys are up to, so. Thanks, thanks, thanks. And, yeah, the the Heritage Buildings, I, I you, you want to preserve the history, but you also want to build up the city as well. I mean, like, you can give, like, an homage to the old building, have, like, maybe pictures of it or, like, pieces of it somewhere in, like, the new building, but, like, before those old buildings were built, there was other things that were there. 
as well. I mean, the, you can build new things and give homages to them at the same time and then improve things as you're going along. I think that's the way to do it because a lot of times we spend a whole lot of effort protecting things that are past their prime, right? I feel, I think it was the Taz show, it was a few years ago, he said when they were saving the Sarnia Road Bridge, he had the most the best analogy, he said, it's going to end up being like the treadmill in your basement, that it's cool for a little while, and it's just going to end up housing your laundry. <laughs> that is beautiful. Hey, Kevin, thanks for the call. No problem, have a good one. <laughs> you too. <laughs> You know, you you can't get in the way of progress, and that's where this very fine line exists. And we're always going to have people who say, no, you've got to preserve the building, but at the same time, I think there are other ways to do it. Andy had pointed to Budweiser Gardens as well as saying a great example of how it can be done right. You know, if if you had just put up a plaque commemorating the Talbot Hotel, it would be different, I really believe, because you wouldn't have anybody who didn't know the story asking, why is it that that part of the building looks different from the rest of the building? But because you're able to create some sort of structural significance, there are always concerns that, oh, well, here we go, more high-rises, more high-rises. Well, What if a high-rise, if it is on a spot where something historical was or something historical took place, what if you could have the builders do something like that, that that be part of the agreement, that, you know, part of the ground floor has to be this, or you have to do something, whether it's a mural, who knows? I mean, your creativity is boundless at that point. Do whatever it is that you want in order to commemorate what used to be there. And I really believe you're going to get a whole lot more out of it than you would if you simply said, no, we can't put anything on this site because this tiny shed has historical significance. I don't think so. We are going to talk about a number of things after Jacqueline LaBelle and news. We're going to hear from Pete Shepard much later on next hour. Pete is somebody that we talked to going into the Toronto Indy weekend, and he took part in the NASCAR Pinty's Grand Prix. You won't believe all the things he had to overcome to get to what ended up being a top 10 finish, but he'll talk about it. We'll talk about bike safety on King Street. We've got a lot of people who are sticking their hands in the air saying, yeah, you know, since all the buses got moved to King Street, it used to be a great place to be on a bike. Now, not so much, and it's being dealt with at City Hall today. We are also going to talk about people's reluctance to move and what that is doing to the overall economy. Would you move for a new job? Would you say, yeah, no problem. You want me to switch provinces at the age of 55 for a new job? I'm in. A lot of people are saying no, and young people are doing it too because young people will say, yeah, but this is where my friends are. This is where my family is. I don't want to move all the way across the country for a job, but what is that doing to our economy? Well, they've been looking at that at Western, and we'll have some answers for you. Plus, today ends up being a very historic day in London, and we'll touch on that too. 
My name is Mike Stubbs. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This hour, we'll talk about driving 170 miles an hour through the streets of Toronto. We'll talk about biking safely through the streets of London. We're also going to look at why it is that people don't want to move for work and what the effects of that are. And we're going to find out about a very historic day. Did you realize that today... July 17th, if we go all the way back to 1980, was the day that Terry Fox ran down Dundas Street. We'll get more information on that in just a little bit. An email from Sean on History. Sean says, buried in our subconscious is a love for history and old architecture. It's why our favorite vacation spots are not in Canada, but rather predominantly Europe. While I agree building up is key to progress, why can't we preserve more and tear down less? So many run-down new places. Please save the old buildings. Sean, thank you so much for that. This hour of London Live brought to you by our friends at Winmar. We are also going to do our best to talk with one of the more recent mayoral candidates to declare in the area. Heather Jackson Chapman has declared in St. Thomas. We talked with Joe Preston last week. Well, Heather Jackson Chapman is the incumbent mayor and should make for a very interesting race there. We've got a great race here in London. The mayoral races are where it's at these days. Let's still talk right now about something that they have uncovered at Western University. And they've done it using an economic model. And it deals with the fact that our economy could be in some trouble if people don't want to do certain things going forward in life. In other words, move, whether it's within an industry or whether it is from one place to another, maybe even one province to another. And there is some data that indicates that's an issue. Joining us right now is Professor Simona Kochuba. She's a macroeconomics expert at Western University. Professor Kochuba, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Well, not too bad. We're always trying to figure out what affects unemployment rates. And sometimes we look around and we think, yeah, our unemployment rate should be a little bit lower. You've come up with a pretty interesting model. What does it indicate? So we um, actually look at a model in which we examine sectoral reallocations, and these are uh, widespread phenomena which involve movements of workers across sectors in response to changes in the mix of regional industry employment. So one of the things that um, uh, is interesting is that whenever we have an economy uh, where um, we're seeing a shrinking uh, of a sector and another growing industry, it can be very costly for workers to... uh, to switch uh, to a new sector looking for a job. And the process of switching jobs typically involves uh, a spell of unemployment, a period of retraining, and and so on. Uh, So what we do in the study is essentially we uh, try to come up with a, a measure of the aggregate costs of sectoral reallocation. So rather than look at 
the perspective of an individual that's trying to reallocate a job. We're trying to think about the economy as a whole um, and how costly could uh, sectoral reallocations be in terms of how difficult it is for those workers to find new jobs uh, and what's the impact of, uh, on the unemployment rate. What we find is uh, that because um, economies have fewer young workers of working age that are willing to uh, move across um, um, different industries and across uh, different regions, the economy could be vulnerable in response to regional um, uh, changes in industry employment, and that can lead to periods of high unemployment. Okay, then let's turn this, like you say, you're looking at it from an economic perspective. Let's turn this to the workers themselves. What you're finding is workers are unwilling to either physically move where a job might be or unwilling to change to a job in a a slightly different industry? Yes. So there is a a study that we are drawing upon here, which is by René Morissette, which has looked specifically at Canadians and found that the majority of unemployed Canadians are not willing uh, to move to another province or elsewhere in the province and uh, to find uh, a job. This restricted mobility is going to uh, raise the costs of sectoral reallocations uh, in, uh, in our framework. And why would it do that? Why would it contribute to higher costs within the economy? Uh, so, so what we find is we're looking at, uh, at uh, economies, uh, we're examining economies that have different uh, rates of population growth. So as I said, one of the novel angles is demographics. So the main idea that we have here is that uh, at low population growth rates, so if we have an economy where the population growth uh, uh, is low, uh, and then we have industries that are growing and some that are shrinking, then the question is, how are we going to get the workers to where the jobs are? And at low population growth, you're going to have fewer uh, workers that are um, in the workforce which are willing to move um, because you have fewer young workers, right? And the older, um, the older uh, working age population will uh, not be willing to move and they will stay put. So essentially, it's going to be more costly to fill the jobs in the growing industry because essentially what you end up having to do is move workers from other sectors to where the growing uh, uh, sector is and to where the jobs are. Uh, alternatively, when population growth are higher, um, that means that you're going to be having a lot of young people entering the workforce, and typically these young people will not um, uh, will not have uh, skills yet. So you can guide them to where the, the, the jobs are, um, and this makes the whole process of allocating workers where the jobs are a little bit uh, easier and less costly. We're talking with Professor Simona Kochuba, who is a macroeconomics expert in Western's Department of Economics. In terms of, of making that happen, do you have any suggestions as to what might make that easier? Providing incentives for, for people to, to, to move jobs, that's, a, that's always a tough one because, as I said, this recent study about Canadians is that they're unwilling to move because of uh, uh, staying close to family and friends and having uh, uh, family ties and so on. But um, uh, So we can still try to think as, as an economy about what kind of incentives can we uh, provide to draw people to where the jobs are, to the growing sectors. And, of course, um, one other uh, 
policy that uh, uh, we could think about is uh, immigration and and being open as an economy to attracting skilled uh, uh, working immigrants that uh, might help the economy uh, achieve the mix of jobs that that it uh, needs. Certainly. One last question, and that is, is Canada alone in this, or can we look around the world and find a similar issue? So uh, Canada is actually uh, 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 not doing as badly as other countries in the sense that there are many of uh, the world's top economies that are uh, going to have uh, even larger challenges than Canada. So the working age population has been uh, um, uh, shrinking in some uh, countries, like, for example, Japan. Um, so these uh, large demographic changes are visible and they're coming. And unfortunately, we have not seen um, seen it all yet. So in, in some sense, the worst is yet to come uh, for, for, for many economies, yes. Well, let's hope that Canada can avoid being at, at or near the top of the list of the worst. Uh, thank you so much for the, the explanation of the model for the study, and here's hoping this adds fuel to whatever fire it takes to help deal with what you are finding. Okay, thank you so much. That is Professor Simona Kochuba. Macroeconomics expert at Western University. So take a look at it, and it does make sense. The idea that people don't necessarily want to move far away. Every once in a while, sure, you run into somebody who says, I'm going to live in New York City, and they make it happen. I'm going to live on Vancouver Island, and they make it happen. But if you do move away, you are losing that social structure that builds up. My wife and I did it. We moved across the country, moved to Calgary, Alberta. And as great a city as that was, as great a time as we had, when it came time to have a family, that was one of the things that was on the pros and cons list about what to do next. And we made this great big long list. And it was, well, do we want to make every family vacation coming back to Ontario to visit family? Or do we want to be that far away from family so that they don't get to know ours? No, we didn't want either of those things. You know, do you want to go back and make it so that you you can have friends that are going to be friends that you've had for a long time? You're going to still be able to be in their lives. Becomes a really big element for some people. And the idea that a job would exist and somebody's saying, yeah, but no, my social structure is here. My family is here. So I don't think so. I would encourage it. I mean, to do it, but the draw to come back is going to be there. And if you are raised in one place, the draw to go back to that place is always going to be there, isn't it? I mean, you can move somewhere and you can spend a long time there and you can call yourself whatever it is that you become. But that draw is still to go back to wherever you came from. I think. So now we look at it from an economic perspective and you see that it it could create economic issues going forward and that how do you fill jobs? How do you find those skilled workers? You've got to provide incentives for young people or you have to focus in and don't tell POTUS down in the U.S. about this. You have to focus in on immigration. That is the way to do it. You find skilled workers in other countries who want to come here and work and do those jobs. Speaking of jobs, one of the most important jobs in any municipality 
is the one at the top of the heap, and that is Mayor. And earlier today in St. Thomas, Heather Jackson announced that she will be running again for mayor. As we continue to follow races all over the place, we'll speak with Mayor Jackson next on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Still to come, the significance of July 17th in the history of London. About a half hour ago, we were talking about preserving history in London. Well, this becomes a very significant day. This was the day Terry Fox arrived in London during his Marathon of Hope. We'll talk about that at 2.35. We are also going to hear from Pete Shepard. He had a weekend that you would think was forgettable, except for the fact that he did really, really well as part of the Toronto Indy weekend. He finished top 10, and he'll take us through what took place. We have been following the mayoral races in London and surrounding area, and if you are looking for municipal races, the mayor's races are very, very interesting already. We are joined right now by someone who has decided to seek a third term as mayor of St. Thomas, Heather Jackson. Mayor Jackson, how are you? Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. So seeking a third term, how big a decision was this? Um, you know, actually, it wasn't uh, It wasn't that uh, difficult to make. I absolutely love the city of St. Thomas, and I love everything that I do. Uh, so, you know, it, it just kind of made sense. We've got a lot of projects underway, a lot of things happening, a lot of amazing things happening in the city. And, um, you know, I, I've got some projects that I would like to see finished. So I'd um, hope for the community support on a, a third term as mayor. Going into the race the very first time must be so much different going into it now. What would you point to as being maybe the different feelings that you're feeling? Um, you know, it, it's it's different because I know uh, what to expect and uh, I know what um, what the day-to-day kind of entails and um, certainly have um, have that under my belt with, you know, with eight years of experience um, and, and, and it's, it's certainly a different feeling. Uh, but you never take anything for granted, and, and certainly we'll be out knocking on doors just like I've done in uh, four previous campaigns that I've, I've, um, I've been involved in here in the city. What would you look at as being some of the, the challenges that you've had to deal with in your first two terms as mayor in St. Thomas? Uh, I think the, the biggest challenges were really getting a grasp on the infrastructure deficit in the community and um, and assessing really what needed to be done first, which roads needed to be fixed, which sewers, all of that, um, and coordinating those projects and and then securing the funding. We did receive um, you know a significant funding over the last number of years from the provincial government to to do some of these projects. So certainly um, know that we couldn't have done uh, a lot of these major reconstruction projects that are currently ongoing uh, without the support of uh, upper levels of government. We're talking with St. Thomas Mayor Heather Jackson. Mayor Jackson, you also pointed that there are other projects you want to see finished. Would they all fall under infrastructure or would there be others? Uh, there's a lot, definitely, that uh, infrastructure is, is is one of those things that every municipality in the country is dealing with. But we, we certainly um, have some affordable housing projects underway uh, as well as um, a really exciting uh, development for the former Alma College property. Um, so that's in the works and actually had, um, you know, they met with the developers this morning and saw some new proposed plans. So, you know, these projects are moving forward and, and you know, I hope to be here to be part of them. 
We mentioned that the mayoral races in London and now in St. Thomas, very interesting races in that you have individuals, Ed Holder in London, with political experience that goes into other levels of government, and now Joe Preston in St. Thomas. Describe what you think the race is going to be like. Um, you know, I think it's going to be interesting uh, and I, and exciting. I, I love campaigning. Uh, my, one of my favorite parts of, of the job is being able to talk to people, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, in the grocery store, whether it's, it's at an event or whatnot, um, and really hearing from people. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And it, it's going to be interesting dynamics because um, Joe brings a certain level of, of federal knowledge to the table, and he's got a great deal of community strength as well from different community groups. Um, but he he doesn't have the uh, the knowledge of the municipal budget, all of that. And those documents are certainly available for for people to review. But um, you know, after being involved with municipal politics for 15 years that I've been, uh, you know, certainly it, it's second nature to to know those files and to know um, you know what our plans are uh, currently and and kind of some of our our growth plans for for the future for the community. If you look at some of those growth plans, anything that you're excited about seeing happen? Uh, definitely. We've got, um, you know, we're, we're right now our staff is, is doing a review of some lands at the west end of the city that we could look at um, uh, opening up for residential use and, and certainly looking at um, what that means. This is a whole area of the city. We've got lots of land there. Um, and our growth has been in different areas in the community. So this is, it's really exciting. We're heading a different direction. Um, and it, it's a big project to be able to, to uh, open up lands for, for future development and to service them and have them ready. But it's certainly something we as a community um, need to be doing so that we remain competitive in the region. Mayor Jackson, thank you so much for the time. It's my pleasure, Mike. Anytime. That is Mayor Heather Jackson. City of St. Thomas, so Joe Preston and Heather Jackson have their hats in the ring as those big names in St. Thomas. You look at the big names in London, the mayoral races, they are going to be a whole lot of fun to watch. We are going to be talking about an event that took place many, many years ago now. We're going back 38 years now, all the way back to 1980, and the arrival of Terry Fox in London, Ontario. And it's a day that a lot of people who were involved in it or who even just came out onto the street to see Terry Fox will remember like it was yesterday. It's one of those days. It's one of those watershed moments in your own life and where he was and coming down Dundas Street and people from the Kellogg's factory came out. A lot of a lot of people will tell those stories. So it becomes one of those days. And you know what? The Terry Fox run still has so much impact on everybody because cancer is one of those things that you really can't avoid in life. It touches you in some way or another. And Terry Fox still becomes that, that symbol for all of us, that that Canadian symbol that that really takes to heart the fight against one of those diseases that nobody has really been able to figure out to any great extent. I mean, so much has been done research-wise for the money or from the money that has been raised, but cancer is not just, hey, one day we'll find a cure for cancer. It's not like that. Uh, it's It's a whole lot different than that. It's not that easy. 
And so Terry Fox still has that that place in everyone's lives in this country. So we will take some time to remember that. We're also going to talk about bike safety on King Street. Again, this goes back to buses being taken and put on King Street while you know buses were taken off Dundas Street. They're not going back based on it becoming a flex street. But King Street used to be one of those great passages for cyclists. Now all of a sudden... It isn't. There have been some big concerns raised. Yes, there are bike lanes, but when you have vehicles that are turning or buses that are stopping and they are coming into those bike lanes, that's something that is certainly concerning a whole lot of cyclists. And the last thing you want to see is a story that is a warning turn into something that's a whole lot worse than a warning. So we'll talk about that. And Pete Shepard will join us as well. London race car driver who was competing in the NASCAR Pinty's Grand Prix on the weekend. We talked to him going into the race. He was excited doing it simply because he had done it once before. Now, a little more experience as a driver. It was a road course, and that presents all kinds of different challenges. Well, if you tried to list all of the challenges that Pete actually had to go through, you'd run out of room on a piece of paper because this wasn't just about showing up with his vehicle. Pete's going to tell us about his dad running through a very nice hotel in the city of Toronto with the back end of a vehicle in his arms, trying to quickly get out the door, dodge all kinds of people who are coming in to check in so that he could bring that back to London so that Pete could race. That story before we close out today on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is quite the day. It is July 17th. And while you don't necessarily have this marked down as being a big day in history, if you look it up, and thanks very much to our next guest for helping us to do that on London Live, you will see that this was the day back in 1980 that Terry Fox came through London. And that became a pretty big day for all kinds of people, for all kinds of reasons. Joining us right now is Paul Cox, who just happens to be one of the organizers of the Terry Fox Run in London. Paul, how are you? I'm well, thank you. And you, Mike? Not too bad. It was a Thursday. It was July 17th, 1980. For anyone who was not there, set the scene of what you remember. Well, I recall standing at the corner of uh, Dundas and First Streets, and uh, the streets were full. I recall seeing over my left shoulder some fellows coming run up with firefighters' boots, and people were stuffing money into the boots. Uh, money was falling out onto the ground. They were so full of donations from such generous London. Uh, I helped to gather up some money at one point and pushing them down into the boots, and and. Uh, then a few minutes later, Terry Fox ran by, and uh, it was uh, getting close to noon hour, and I believe it was actually a Tuesday, Mike, uh, but it was July 17th, 1980. Now, the late Ted Wernham had written about the day. He saw more grown-ups cry that day. The Terry Fox had such an impact. Do you remember that? Uh, I, I certainly do remember it. Uh, uh, I was, uh, I remember I was standing with a colleague and she had tears rolling down her face and I had a big smile on mine. Uh, I've always seen, uh, the entire Terry Fox phenomenon as a true story of hope. Uh, but of course there were so many people that would, uh, be moved to tears. And you mention a word that always comes up, hope. 
Is that something you think that that is the reason why we hold Terry Fox with such reverence that he is that true symbol of hope? Absolutely. Even though the uh, uh, incidences of cancer is on the rise, so are survival rates. So that is definitely concrete proof that the funds that are being raised are making a difference in more and more people's lives. Cancer has become a disease that people live with, not a disease that people die from. Well said. Paul, thanks so much for sharing these memories with us. Thank you very much. I would just like to say that if any Londoner would like to make any sort of a comment uh, about uh, July 17, 1980, or where Terry Fox is, they could drop us a line at terryfoxrunlondon at gmail.com, and we would be happy to post any comments that come in at the run, which is for Sunday, September 16th. Okay, your phone just cut out, Just it's Sunday, September 16th? The, the actual run date is Sunday, September 16th, and our email address is London at gmail.com. Okay. And if anyone didn't have a chance to write that down and you need it, we do have it here in studio so you can give us a call and we can pass that on. Paul, thank you again for everything. Great talking to you, Mike. Take care of yourself. Take care. That's Paul Cox remembering the day that Terry Fox came through London 38 years ago today. Next, we are going to talk about bike safety in London along King Street. It is a big issue, and if you're unsure why, well, you're about to find out. My name is Mike Stubbs. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Getting around any city has its challenges. We've had a lot of discussions lately about getting around this city and how it should be done and how it will be done in the future. If you are a cyclist, there are spots that are pretty tricky, and yet... Everybody always looks for a good northwest corridor, at least a couple, depending on where you live, and some good east-west corridors. And the one going east-west or west-east, in a way, is sometimes very tricky. Going east-west, let's look at that right now, because it is something that is coming up at City Hall. If you have cycled on King Street recently you may realize there are more challenges than there used to be. A lot of times they result from the bus traffic that is now there, the other increased traffic that is there because Dundas is closed in a lot of spots, even York is closed. Traffic is getting pushed into fewer and fewer routes while we redo some of the infrastructure downtown. Joining us right now is somebody you know from Youth Opportunities Unlimited, but also someone who is very, very up to speed on cycling in this city. Steve Cordes. Steve, how are things? Very good, thanks. How are you, Mike? Not too bad. Let's look at some of the concerns about King Street as a corridor right now if you are on a bike. What can you tell us? Um, It's horrible. Uh, King Street used to be actually a pretty uh, decent uh, street to ride on uh, because there is a, a painted bike lane there. Now, there is street parking, so you've always got to watch about being doored, you know, um, but there's been enough room. Uh, the challenge is now with the bus traffic there, uh, I would not want to be an LTC driver uh, going on that road uh, because you have to cross the bike lane many times to grab passengers, drop them off, and so on. And as a bike, uh, there's times when you're caught beside a, a, a bus, you know you're in a blind spot, uh, as they're, as they happen to be pulling out, they're looking for a car, 
uh, a bike comes by so quickly, it must be almost impossible to see a bike. As a cyclist, uh, there's times when you just feel like you're really um, tossing the dice every time you're on that street. And that's the last thing you want to do. Nobody should leave home for work in the morning or to go wherever it is you have to go and roll proverbial dice. We want to stay away from that. Now, you mentioned there are bike lane markings on King Street. And if we look around any number of cities, we're seeing more and more of those. And in London, they are painted green. And you would think, okay, well, that is a designated space. Things are really, really moving forward, and things are getting so much better. You're telling us that that's not enough. No, exactly. I've been cycling to work um, almost every day uh, for the past 20-some-odd years. And when I first started cycling, uh, unless it was a beautiful, balmy day like today, you'd see very few cyclists other than kids, where it was their only vehicle. And by kids, I mean teenagers. Uh, now you're seeing a lot of actual office commuters on bikes and professors that have the Western and so on. So bike traffic is good. The bike lanes are coming along. So when you see a bike lane, that's the city saying, you know what? This is a place that we've selected that's a safe place for cyclists to ride. And we're going to inform the car drivers, the vehicle traffic to know this is a bike lane. Here's how you respect it. And then the city added this immense amount of bus traffic and I don't know what they're telling cyclists or what they're telling drivers because fundamentally the bike lane is now ignored. And uh, and yet now you have a lot of cyclists using that bike lane. It's treacherous for everybody. We're talking with Steve Cordes and we're talking about bike lanes in London, specifically though King Street, which has been brought up by a number of cyclists as being a really unsafe spot to be on a bike. If we look at Colburn right now, and even Colburn leading up to King Street, there are barriers that have been added to the bike lane. Is that something you would like to see more of? Oh, my God. You know, I rode, yes. Uh, I rode on that uh, bike lane about three weeks ago, the first time ever. And it was the first time, and it didn't didn't occur to me, because like I said, I've been riding for 20 years. It didn't occur to me that I didn't feel completely safe until I was on that bike lane, and I could just feel like a level of relaxation that as a cyclist, I don't feel. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is what true safety when you're on your bike means. It's a beautiful thing. I was riding on Adelaide Street the other day because I had to do a bit of a commute at 4 o'clock. And the cars were going so close to me uh, that I felt their exhaust on my leg as they go by me. And sure, there's a law you're supposed to have a meter at least. Uh, A car is supposed to give you at least a meter. Uh, either they don't know or they don't. Uh, they choose not to. But that's dangerous for everybody. So more of those barriers, if we could possibly do it, would be one of those things that, that you would list as, as being a positive. Anything else that could be done, Steve, that, that would help the situation? Um, hmm. I think the barriers, I think that when you build an infrastructure, it's like even the car, uh, the road infrastructure that we have now, and we all seem to take it granted, it was built under the intention of we're going to create roads that are safe, safe for pedestrians. We would never build a road and not put in a sidewalk. We would never put a sidewalk within a lane of a road. Uh, And so why do we put a bike lane within a lane of a road uh, and say that's our cycling infrastructure? It's not. So uh, there needs to be an intentionality around not just the nice and the kind words and gestures about creating infrastructure, 
we know it's good for the environment. We know it's good for road maintenance because it reduces costs. The cycle, cyclists can occupy far less space, uh, eases congestion and so on. But when we build this infrastructure, we have to build it with the same level of understanding of safety and practicality that we do when we build a road for vehicles. And we don't do that. Civic Works is looking at it, and hey, in a discussion phase, we're not necessarily going to see solutions, but hopefully we see something proposed that can make it feel safer for cyclists. Steve, thanks for presenting the issues that you go through as a cyclist. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity. Have a great afternoon. You too. Thank you. Steve Cordes, who you know from Youth Opportunities Unlimited, but spelling out the only time he felt safe on a bike that he can think back to was when he was on that stretch of Colburn that does have those barriers now. We'll take a break and talk about someone who, well, did his best to be as safe as possible, zooming around the streets of Toronto on the weekend. And he really was zooming. He zoomed all the way to a top 10 finish in the NASCAR Pinty's Grand Prix. He's next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It's not always that we get to find out what happened. A lot of times we look ahead at what is happening. But if we look back, and we've been doing that today a little bit, looking back at history, looking back at the history of Terry Fox's arrival in London, happened on this very day in 1980. We talked with Pete Shepard last week. He is a Londoner, originally born in Brampton, but he calls himself a Londoner. And he is a race car driver who was part of the Toronto Indy weekend at the NASCAR Pinty's Grand Prix, racing against Alex Tagliani, DJ Kennington, a whole bunch of other drivers. Well, we get a chance now to talk about what Pete had to go through to earn a top 10 finish. Pete joins us on the phone. Pete, congratulations. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a, a hard-fought uh, race for us, so we're happy with the results we uh, we came up with here. All right, let's go back to how the weekend began, because probably if you were to script it out, you wouldn't write down anything that actually took place at the beginning. What happened? Yeah, no, it was definitely uh, it was definitely a tough one to take early on in practice. Obviously, uh, I remember back in two thousand and five when I initially ran here. Um, the S corners, which I think 9, 10, and 11, they were a lot more sweeping. And uh, now when you come off 11, which is the last corner there, it really tightens up. And I, I got in the wall, bent the rear end, and uh, just caused a whole bunch of stuff for the crew and uh, missed a bunch of track time, which was needed. And when you wind up doing that, did you know as you were coming into the turn, was it, was it an up, uh-oh moment? What was that like? Yeah, I knew I was in a bit of trouble because I was a little bit high getting into that corner. Uh, you heard probably a lot of the IndyCar guys say there was there was marbles up there, so it washed me up instantaneously. And when I got into the wall with the right side, I heard it break. I heard the back end break, and it basically broke a heim, causing the rear end to shift back and forth and bent the rear end. A real funny story about that, though, is when we got it out of the car, my dad, he had to bring it back to London to get it fixed, and he actually had to go through a, a pretty pretty expensive hotel's lobby to get outside the track with this big 9-inch forward rear end. So uh, you got a couple of looks walking through the, the lobby with that in his hand. That's <laughs> That's for sure. So he runs it all the way back to London, does the repairs, and then brings it back to Toronto. And this whole time, you can't be driving, practicing, doing anything. Exactly. Yeah, we can't get on the track at this point. Everyone else is making laps, uh, getting better and better. and We're kind of stuck. So I'm studying, watching, trying to learn everything I can about the track, but unable to get on there for practice or qualifying. So it was uh, it was gut-wrenching for sure. Day one, we thought we were in for, uh, for some trouble. 
So how do you deal with that then as a driver? How do you then get to the start line and convince yourself that, ah, no, 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 that things are still okay? <laughs> well, I mean, you're not really sure if it's going to be okay, obviously, but uh, there's there's a lot of good guys in the series. So just trying to maintain a little bit of speed with the pack. We, uh, we kept the VR simulators forward, um, you know, within striking distance, um, felt out the first few laps, because obviously my first lap in the race was the first complete lap that I ran all weekend. So uh, five laps in, we started to feel a little bit better and, and make our way through the pack. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely very difficult. And, and that track in itself is probably the most challenging track that I've ever raced on in my career. So and there's no room for error there. Londoner Pete Shepard joining us as we talk about his top 10 finish at the Pinty's Grand Prix in Toronto on the weekend. We had talked to Pete going into the weekend, and you had raced the track before, and who knows what happens once a race begins. For you to come from the back, how did you do that on a road course where passing isn't always the easiest thing to do? Yeah, there, there's only a few zones for passing, uh, passing safely anyway. I mean, you have the Lakeshore uh, entry into turn three where you can make a pass. Going into turn one is another good passing zone, but you just you just got to buy your time and be patient. I mean, we were battling inside the top ten, I think at the mid midpoint of the race, uh, when a car got into some braking trouble behind us and actually spun out backwards and ran into us, turning us around, causing us to do it all over again. Um, obviously, the second time, I felt a little better about it because I had some laps under me, but uh, definitely passed a lot of cars over the weekend and uh, just couldn't have done it with uh, without the support of my crew. The guys worked till 11:30 p.m on the Friday night to get that rear end back in the car, plus some scaling the day after. So, yeah, what a whirlwind, a whirlwind of emotions. Uh, happy that everybody else was happy after the race, too. I was as well. So it was a turn into a good weekend overall. Now, you didn't get to practice much, but you said you got to study a lot. Did that help in any way in climbing through the pack a couple of times? I think so, yeah. I mean, I watched some in-car camera views. Obviously, there wasn't a lot for our division there, but, I mean, the IndyCar stuff, it happens a lot faster, but I did a lot of studying there. Spent a lot of time on my VRX simulator, obviously, before the race as well. But uh, that's really all you can do to prepare. Um, when it comes to the oval side of the series versus the road course side, there's just so much more precision involved with the road course racing and so much more studying because every single end is so different. It's like running on five different racetracks in one weekend as opposed to just running on one oval. So, yeah, it was it was tough, but I did a lot of homework, and I'm glad I did because it really paid off with the, the lack of track time that I did I did receive. Pete Shepard III with us as we talk about the results of the 2018 Pinty's Grand Prix in Toronto, where Pete cracked the top 10. DJ Kennington of St. Thomas was eighth. Alex Tagliani was in this race. He was second. Andrew Ranger won it. You're there with other great drivers. Do you get a chance to hang out with the drivers, or is everybody pretty much in their own space for something like this? Yeah, we're all packed into a pretty good uh, facility there. So you, you, you see a lot of guys, and obviously before the race, I talked to Andrew a little bit about some of the things he does. I mean, there's, that's the difference with our season. When we hit the road course racing, I think we have uh, what you'd say is world-class road course racers. I mean, Andrew Ranger, Alex Tagliani, Kevin Lacroix, these guys on any stage, whether it be the, the Cup Series, even they can compete for wins in the right equipment. So they're world-class guys, and, and you can learn a lot from them. But at the same time, it makes uh, finishing the top 10 that much more special because you're really racing against, in my opinion, some of the best in the world at it. Well, you are racing against that and a few other elements, too. So definitely enjoy this one, Pete. Thank you so much for recapping it for us. And again, congratulations on quite the performance. Thanks a lot, Mike, for the time. We really appreciate it. Pete Shepard III, a Londoner who cracked the top ten 
in the NASCAR Pinty's Grand Prix on the weekend, despite his dad running the back end of his car through a hotel in Toronto, driving it back to London, repairing it, and then bringing it back and having him go through the pack twice in order to make it happen. Pretty amazing. We are about out of time. This hour of London Live has been brought to you by Winmar, your property restoration specialist. Coming up on the show tomorrow, we'll look at one company's move toward autonomous vehicles. Now, this is a company that was formed less than two years ago. In fact, less than a year and a half ago. And they're already one of the leaders in autonomous vehicles. But that's because they're doing it a certain way. And we'll find that out. And we'll also talk about baseball in Canada. Baseball itself, you'd think, eh, you look at the numbers, it might be in trouble. In Canada, you have to look at some very different numbers. Thanks to Andrew Graham. News is next on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.